we even have parables of Jesus like the wise and foolish virgins where the bridegroom has been delayed and nobody knows exactly when he's going to show up for the party. And so the, the, the fault in the foolish virgins is not that they fell asleep. No, it's that they were not prepared for when Christ came. And, and that's the warning to Christians now, almost 2000 years after the time of Christ is, are you prepared to meet your maker morally in terms of your belief structure, in terms of your lifestyle? Are you prepared to meet your maker? That's the question that we should all be asking ourselves. Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Ben Witherington III. Dr. Witherington is Gene R. Amos, Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He's the author of over 60 books. Today we discuss his book, The Problem with Evangelical Theology, Testing the Exegetical Foundations of Calvinism, Dispensationalism, Wesleyanism, and Pentecostalism. Our conversation is centered around chapter 6. This chapter is an excellent introduction to prophetic literature generally and apocalyptic literature specifically. So we're mainly going to focus on the apocalyptic literature part of that. All of his book recommendations will be listed in the show notes. I would like to say, though, he mentions a book that's not out yet. So in lieu of listing a link to her book, I'll instead list the link to her page on the Asbury University website. So without further ado, Ben Witherington III. Ben Witherington, thank you for being here on the podcast. First thing we like to do is have the guests tell us a little bit about themselves. Will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. I'm a professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, um, mainly at this point in my career after 40 years of teaching. I'm mainly dealing with doctoral students and their coursework and their dissertations, of which we have 57 such doctoral students in Old and New Testament. So as the Bible says, I'm not eating the bread of idleness. I am like a frog on a hot rock. I'm busy, to say the least. I'm a writer. I've written over 60 books. You can find them on Amazon and elsewhere. And I, I have my education is I'm from North Carolina. I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I went to the University of Durham in England to do my PhD in women in the New Testament. That was the three original books that I wrote were about women in the New Testament. And uh, I have taught at a variety of places, High Point University in my hometown, Duke Divinity School, Vanderbilt Divinity School, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Ashland Theological Seminary for 11 years as a full-time teacher, and then finally, and now, Asbury Seminary since 1995. So that's a summary of my career. I'm also an ordained United Methodist minister in the North Carolina Conference, pastored six churches before I became a full-time teacher, 
So I also have pastoral experience and uh, I am an ordained elder. I've been married for 46 years to my wife, Anne. We have a child in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, who's a computer geek, and he's married and has one son, Elliot, and we have a Russian daughter in Paris who is a doctor or professor, Yulia, at a major university in Paris, and she also has one son, Louis. So that's the summary of what you might want to know. Good stuff. Thank you. So the invitation that I sent out was a reference to one of your many books, but a specific part of it, but I do want to discuss the larger purpose of the book. So the book is The Problem with Evangelical Theology, Testing the Exegetical Foundations of Calvinism, Dispensationalism, Wesleyanism, and Pentecostalism. For the listeners, I just want to explain, we're going to go into apocalyptic literature because this is, in my life, in my 20s, the second source that I found that had a helpful explanation of what apocalyptic literature was. The first was Bruce Metzger's Breaking the Code, which is actually where this podcast gets its name from. But the chunk of part two of this book that explains apocalyptic was so helpful. And I don't... This may not resonate with you, but this book for me is a companion in my head with Mark Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Can you explain why you wrote this book, what you wanted to put out into the world when you wrote this book, and anything else about this book you want to say? A major theme throughout the book, The Problem with Evangelical Theology, is this, that whenever a particular Protestant group has gone for a home run on a particular distinctive theological notion, those turn out to be the least well-grounded in Scripture. And that's true right across the board. So, for example, the Calvinistic notion of the perseverance of the saints is just almost incapable of being explained when we deal with the apostasy text in the New Testament, where Christians are warned against committing apostasy, or the Wesleyan notion of perfection. Really? <laughs> okay, it's one thing to go on to perfection. It's another thing to expect to be perfected in this lifetime. Again, not real strong exegetical or theological foundations in the scripture, or the Pentecostal notion that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence that you're really born again. That happens sometimes. It doesn't happen to everybody. And as Paul says, speaking in tongues is not a gift that every born-again Christian has. No, that's simply not true in regard to theology. Um, and, And then, of course, dispensationalism. Most people do not know that dispensationalism is a modern Protestant theology. It didn't exist in the first 10 centuries, at least, if not more, of Christian history. Nobody was talking about a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation rapture in the early church. Absolutely nobody. The real nascence of this comes with Protestants 
in the UK and elsewhere, perhaps as early as the 18th century, but certainly in the 19th century. And then that theology grew like kudzu all over the South, covering all kinds of other theologies. And it became especially popular in the South and the United States of America, even though the foundation for the idea of a rapture is not at all solid in the New Testament itself. So what I have done with this book is say, it might be better if we all stuck to making the main thing. And the main thing is the theology and ethics that all Orthodox Christians, whether Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, share in regard to things like Christology, a high view of scripture, all these sorts of things, not particular theologies which distinguish them from all other Christian groups. That's a helpful introduction to the book. So now, focusing in on specifically the portion where you walk through what apocalyptic is, and I know the book is a few years old, so if there's any tweaking you need to do to this, but I wanted to read the definition that you offer. So in the passage you say, but what is apocalyptic literature? Here is a definition that begins to help us decipher such material, followed by an orienting discussion. The Society of Biblical Literature definition arising out of its seminar on apocalyptic literature is as good a starting point as any. It says that an apocalypse is, and now this is in quotes, a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. That's the end of the quote there. And then you go on to say, to this definition is sometimes added the statement that this literature is minority literature written in coded language to comfort a group of believers undergoing some sort of crisis. So would you add anything to that years removed from having written that? Or is that still a good definition? I think that's really quite good. And it makes clear, I think, that we should not be jumbling all together terms like eschatology, apocalyptic, and prophecy in general. Now, there is a particular kind of prophecy that's apocalyptic prophecy. There's a particular kind of prophecy that has eschatological content. But these three things are not identical, and they are distinguishable, and they should be distinguished. So when I'm talking about apocalyptic, the real feature that you can find in all apocalyptic literature is that it's visionary prophecy. It's visionary prophecy. It has to do with a seer who saw some things and then described them. Now, this is different from auditory prophecy, which is classical prophecy. Most of the classical prophets in the Old Testament, all the way back to Samuel, or whether you're thinking of Hosea or Isaiah or whoever else, Jeremiah, that their prophecy is basically, I heard God saying, and then I repeated it. That's auditory prophecy. Visionary prophecy is, I saw in a vision, X, Y, and Z, and now I'm describing it. And see, of course, the problem is that when you are seeing 
for example, God or heavenly things, human vocabulary is wholly inadequate to, to fully describe such things. And so what happens in visionary prophecy is the principle of analogy. It was like, for example, if you read one of the earliest examples of apocalyptic in Ezekiel 1, you will discover almost 40 times Ezekiel uses the word like, indicating comparison. The throne was like, the wheels were like, the stones were like, etc. So it's comparative literature. It is not a literal description of exactly what was seen. It was like this. Now, is it referential? Or has somebody just had a dream that conjured up images in your head that has no bearing on or connection to reality? No, it's referential. It's definitely referential. Something was seen, something was described. And that's the way apocalyptic literature works. But you should never make the mistake of thinking it's a literal description of what God looks like or what his throne looks like or so on. Um, it's an analogy that gives a sense of the character of what was seen. I remember coming across the idea years ago, and I don't remember if it was, I don't know, N.T. Wright or Richard Horsley or someone, but referencing that there would be chunks of, say, a gospel or Paul that, that like, this piece is apocalyptic. And I'm just like, wait, I thought my understanding prior to that had been there's Daniel, which is an apocalyptic book, and there's Revelation, which is an apocalyptic book. So are there are there places where this genre of apocalyptic appears within another type of literature. Oh, sure. Absolutely. For example, Paul's letters are not apocalyptic writ large. Even when he's dealing with what we would call end-time content, eschatological content, he doesn't always use apocalyptic images. But it's important that he says he occasionally had visions. He describes one in 2 Corinthians 12 or 13 that he himself had. And then he cheekily says, but I'm not going to tell you what I saw. <laughs> it's it, He's tweaking the nose of the Corinthians who were far too interested in such things. But yes, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, we have an apocalyptic description of this gnarly ruling figure who Daniel would have said is like a beast because the beasts are the empires and the head of the beasts are the emperors in Daniel, in Daniel 6, for example. And so, yes, Paul uses apocalyptic imagery from time to time, but his works in general are not apocalyptic. Even when they are eschatological, dealing with the return of Christ or the coming kingdom on earth, he's not resorting to visions. He's not describing something he saw in the vision. So mostly Paul is not a visionary. Mostly Paul is an apostle who's well-grounded in the Old Testament and apparently occasionally had revelations himself. 
So th- there can be an eschatological component, but not necessarily. That's right. But for example, I mean, if you were to actually study the some 30 or 40 early Jewish apocalyptic text, take, for example, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, or First Enoch would be another good example, or Fourth Ezra, in some of them, what you have is a tour of the other world, heaven, hell, or Sheol. And it's really not about the future. It's just about the other world. In others, there is definitely eschatological content. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that all apocalyptic is describing the future. Not all of it is. For example, Ezekiel's throne chariot vision in Ezekiel 1 is not about the distant future. It's not about our future, for example. It's about an experience he had while swatting flies the size of large birds by the river Chebar in Iraq. That's what it is. It's a vision of God that he has. And uh, it doesn't have any direct later eschatological content for us to parse or make sense of. So, yes, apocalyptic can include a discussion about the future. Yes, it can include a discussion of the other world. It can include both. But by and large, what it is visions of some kind, whatever the content. So I mentioned earlier that the name of this podcast came from a Brutz Metzger commentary on Revelation, and specifically in Revelation 1, in talking about the description of the heavenly Christ, he says, a lot of people are tempted to say, it means what it says, and he says, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. To that point, there's a passage I highlighted here in my notes where you say what the text meant then is still what it means, what the text means today and what it could not possibly have meant in the first century AD or before it does not mean now these texts were not written to scare the living daylights out of late Western Christians now living shortly after the dawn of the 21st century. The Christian authors of the oracles of the new Testament believed that their own immediate audiences already lived in the age of fulfillment already lived in the end times. And then later on, or no, before that, you said they were the appropriate talk of, of the end times. So even if they're not being specifically eschatological, yeah. they're believing that they live in the eschaton. Yes, absolutely. The coming of Christ himself is the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. Basically, he is the kingdom of God on earth while he's here in his ministry. And then others are included in it as time goes on. Yeah, the issue is not when are the end times going to begin. The issue is, do we know anything about the timing of the end times? And the answer is basically no, we don't. In fact, there's a very specific denial about us knowing the timing of the second coming. Jesus himself says of that day or hour, nobody knows not even the angels in heaven, not even the son, at least while he was on earth. Only the father knows and he ain't telling. There's really no basis in the New Testament 
for theological weather forecasting about the exact timing of the return of Christ. Indeed, one of the dominant metaphors used by Jesus, as well as Paul, is he's going to come like a thief in the night. That means at a surprising time, a time when you might not be prepared. The thing that's hilarious about all this is that despite all of the prognostications over more than 2000, almost 2,000 years now of Christian history, the theological weather forecast has had a 100% failure rate. Whenever anybody went for the jackpot as to when Jesus is coming back, they've all been wrong. All of them have been wrong. Stop. Just stop when you're behind on those sorts of things. It's the fact of the coming of Christ and the fullness of the kingdom, not the timing that the New Testament keeps insisting on. And to the point that you mentioned, I think what you're saying, the thesis of your book, of this book largely is, I guess, the ethical, focusing on the ethical behavior. How would you encourage people to derive an, an understanding to engage apocalyptic literature, whether it's Daniel or Revelation or passages in the Gospels or Paul, to, to understand as a community, right? That's the point of biblical texts. Right. First of all, that you should firmly believe that God is not done with us yet. And therefore, we should live in anticipation. We should live as a prepared people for the bringing of the second coming by Christ. And that does not mean we should be standing on street corners looking up in the sky. What it means is that we are morally and personally prepared to meet the Lord whenever he comes. That's really what it means. And that's why we even have parables of Jesus like the wise and foolish virgins where the bridegroom has been delayed and nobody knows exactly when he's going to show up for the party. And so the fault in the foolish virgins is not that they fell asleep. No, it's that they were not prepared for when Christ came. And that's the warning to Christians now, almost 2,000 years after the time of Christ, is are you prepared to meet your maker morally in, and in terms of your belief structure, in terms of your lifestyle? Are you prepared to meet your maker? That's the question that we should all be asking ourselves. So I, I'm wondering... From your point of view, as someone who's not an expert, and they want to better understand these texts. So let's say you're just an average Protestant, because there's no Apocrypha in the Bible that you carry to church, probably, if you're an average American Protestant. Yeah. And that's where a lot of these, these apocalyptic texts are, right? And actually, most of them are not in the Catholic Apocrypha. Most okay. of them are. Most of them are books that are not in the Catholic canon or the Orthodox canon either. 
They're just out there. The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, not in anybody's canon. First Enoch, not in anybody's canon. Fourth Ezra, not in anybody's canon. They're just early Jewish apocalyptic literature, which was very popular at the in the time of the first century and even up to the end of the first century AD. Fourth Ezra was probably written at about the same time the book of Revelation was written in the 90s. There's a lot of this material out there. And in any case, the ordinary Protestant would not would not encounter it in anybody's Bible. Yeah, that that's important to know. Now, here's an important I want to make. You've already quoted my former teacher, Bruce Metzger, about this. It's it means today what it meant then. And what it could not have possibly meant then, it doesn't mean today. And why is that? It is because the Bible, including the book of Revelation, was a revelation for those first audiences centuries before we even existed. It's the height of arrogance to assume. Bless their hearts, they didn't understand it because it wasn't really for them. Yes, it was. It was for the seven churches that John wrote to. It absolutely was for them, and it was supposed to make some sense to them. And they had a better chance of it making sense because many of them that were Jewish Christians already knew about Jewish apocalyptic literature and how it works. And unfortunately, many modern people have no clue. So they were better off than us in understanding this stuff. So is there any value or utility from your point of view for someone to go and look for these texts that aren't in any of the Christian Bibles or like you said, in anyone's Bible necessarily? Absolutely. If you want to understand the genre or character of this kind of material, let me give you an example. One of the questions you can ask of apocalyptic literature is what is it trying to teach you? Okay. What is it trying to teach you? Point number one, it's not trying to teach you cosmology. Okay. For example, when we hear in Revelation 6 that the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth and gather the saints from the four corners of the earth, the author is not teaching us the shape of the earth. The author is teaching us God's plan for final, final salvation of his people. The subject matter of the Bible is theology, ethics, spiritual formation, and salvation history. That's it. The subject of the Bible is not the age of the earth. It's not the shape of the earth. It's not cosmology, etc. The Bible is not a pre-scientific era science textbook downloaded on unsuspecting people who couldn't possibly understand it. No. It's the story of God's people from Adam all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And those are the subjects, theology, ethics, spiritual formation, and salvation history. That's the subjects of the Bible. So if we ask, what is apocalyptic literature teaching us? It's teaching us something about how to be good Christians, read the letters in Revelation 2 and 3. It's teaching us 
that God is in control of the future. And he's the one who will bring judgment to the earth, even in the person of Christ when we get to Revelation 19, for example. And therefore, it is not the job of Christians to judge the earth. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. God is the God not only of redemption, but of justice. And the good news is that the only person who has the authority and the power to judge the earth is our Savior, Christ. He's the one who can unseal the seals in the book of Revelation and judge the earth. So knowing the subject matter of apocalyptic literature and what it does and what it doesn't teach us it is important. And the message hasn't changed. It's the same message that the first century Christians got. I know for a lot of people, though, there is something of a a membrane that seems like it's impermeable. So when I was 17, a friend of mine said, hey, in, in our little study group, we read this book called Meaning of the Millennium. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it was one of those four point four points of view books. It might've been the first one that anybody had done. And it was on what the millennium means in revelation. So it was these different interpretations and the revelation in that for me was that there was anything other than pre-millennial dispensation, dispensationalism. Like I didn't know. And there are people out there who don't know that the thing they're being taught, whether that's in their church or on social media, or just within their family, is not only wrong, but it's nonsense that when you actually start to learn, here, I'll draw this comparison. There's a guy on TikTok. He's pretty famous on TikTok. His name's Dan McClellan, and he's a biblical scholar. And I know that he and you disagree on univocality within the Bible. However, he and you agree largely from what I can tell on what this text of the book of Revelation or any other apocalyptic text is, because you've been trained in how to read this type of literature. How does how do you pierce that membrane within the general public? I, I like to say knowledge sometimes can be expensive but it requires actual study. Ignorance actually in the long run is more expensive because you end up with wrong ideas. And so the way I would do that is when I'm dealing with a group of, I'll tell you a funny story. I was in Texas, in fact, at Hardin Simmons Baptist College. And they asked, me to come and give the substance of the lectures that you've read on dispensing with dispensationalism in the chapters in the problem with evangelical theology. Now, why in the world would a Baptist seminary that was founded on dispensationalism ask me to come and give those lectures where I'm going to say, not so much? Because... The scholars on their faculty, even though they still had to sign a faith statement, nonetheless had ceased to believe in premillennial dispensational interpretation of the text. They still believed in premillennialism, but they had discovered 
that there was something called historic pre-mill that didn't involve a rapture. And that was actually the dominant theology of the early church in the second and third and fourth centuries before we get to Eusebius and Augustine. And, uh, and so they wanted me to come and fire the silver bullet that told the students there, not so much on the theology of the rapture, and then leave. And then, of course, they had plausible deniability. They were like, that's Ben, and he's a Methodist. He's not even a Baptist. Make what you will of it, and God bless his soul. And so When was that? This was a good 15 years ago. So that actually makes sense, because I remember around that time, Russell Moore, who now seems to have fallen out of favor in Baptist circles, but he was ascendant in that time. And I remember him writing a book. And one of the main things he was trying to do was forge a coalition between historic premillennialists and amillennialists within evangelicalism in general. And I, I don't know how well that experiment did, but for other reasons, he's fallen out of favor. Yes, because dispensational premill is still the dog that hunts in the South in many quarters because people have never been taught anything else than that. And and here's the real problem. The real problem goes back to the Schofield Reference Bible. And the problem with the Schofield Reference Bible is not just their notes, which are dispensational in character, but Mr. Schofield put headings in the biblical text itself. For example, the heading in Matthew 24 is Jesus predicts the rapture. Okay, that's not a line in scripture. That's not an inspired text. It's a heading interjected into the text by Schofield, right? (laughs) But unfortunately, the average layperson sees that and says, well, there it is. Jesus predicts the rapture. It must be true. And we're off to the races. I once had a lady in one of my churches who wanted me to explain to her why we were not using the King James Bible in in our worship service. And I said, it was a good translation in its day in the 17th century, but we have much better translations now. And in any case, ma'am, that King James didn't write this. It was written as a translation done by Lancelot Andrews and a team of Oxford and Cambridge scholars doing the translation. She opened her coffee table giant Bible with the obituaries on one page and the births on another page, went to the first page and pointed to it and said, it says King James Bible. He must have been the author of this Bible. It's that level of sort of intransigence and invincible ignorance that is very difficult to get beyond because they associate a particular interpretation of a translation or of a text with the gospel truth. And so it takes a good deal of education to begin to unpack all of this. And the real deal is, They have to first trust you. They have to trust that you are a genuine, devout Christian with a high view of scripture, etc. 
before you can begin to say, let's look at the history of the interpretation of this, where it comes from, and whether this could be even possibly what the text means. Me personally, one of the reasons Baptists even want to talk to me that are dispensationalists is because I do think that both in Revelation and in the earliest church, the dominant eschatological theory was historic pre-mill, that Revelation 20 is about a millennium. Okay, amillennialists are wrong. We're not in the millennium now. Satan's not locked in some kind of metal cylinder under the earth during church history. Satan's alive and well and wreaking havoc all over the world in during church history. The fact that I say that the best of all of these approaches to what the Bible actually says is historic pre-mill, not amillennialism, not post-millennialism, and not dispensational premillennialism. But really, no matter where your theology ends up, there are best practices for engaging with the text of the Bible. I, and I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that to be like, I disagree with you on that. I'm actually not concerned. Like this podcast is not, it's, a, it's about theology where theology appears, but I'm more interested in, let's look at the disciplines that feed into what biblical studies is, because it could be so many things. In fact, there's really no other thing that I could say, I'm interested in this, and it's going to get me archaeology and history and linguistics and literature and on. There's and, a way and, to do and, all of those things. That's correct. And I like to put it this way, a text without an original context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And what I mean by that is the Bible is a book not written in the 20th or 21st century and not written in English, yea, verily not even in King James English. And therefore, if you actually want to understand it, you need to have a contextual understanding of the languages of the Bible, the history that's in the Bible, the literature that's in the Bible and its various kinds and types, the archaeology of the Bible. You have got to be a multiple hitter of various kinds of things to be able to really understand the context of the content of the Bible. This is why it takes basically a lifetime for some scholars to get up to speed to do justice to what is in the Bible. The, I like what Ernst Casemann once said about the Gospel of John. He says, it's shallow enough for a baby to wade in. You can plug in at a certain level, get the basic salvation me message and do fine. But it's also deep enough for an elephant to drown. And that is true of the Bible from cover to cover. There's always more to know. There's always more to understand. There are always mistakes to be corrected in your understanding. And you have to commit yourself to lifelong learning to really understanding the Bible. Yeah, that learning part is tough. I think, I don't know, sometime in the last 20 years, I started to realize the similarity between like hearing an academic tell you something 
at a young age, like Columbus, people didn't think the earth was flat, right? That's a thing you're told that's it's in all the Bugs Bunny cartoons, but Columbus didn't think the earth was flat. That's a misconception. So the similarity between that and say conspiracy thinking is the beats of it are like, you've always been told X, but actually Y. And that's a really difficult thing to overcome because it's so interesting for somebody on YouTube to break down numbers that align with Hebrew that they don't even know, (laughs) but they're telling you there's some deeper meaning that's been hidden from you, which is applicable in this because we're talking about something in apocalyptic literature that is being unveiled. But if you actually sit down to do the study, it's so much more interesting Because all of that superficial conspiracy type stuff is so intellectually threadbare. I know that I just went off on a tangent, but (laughs) do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, you're right about that. And what I would say is that even apocalyptic literature in the Bible is a revelation of the truth. It's not an obfuscation. It's not like playing wordle. Let's guess. It it's something that you have to study in a particular way to really get the most out of it, and you cannot just read it flatly. And for I'll give you a good example. So Neil Armstrong had just walked on the moon, and I was on the Blue Ridge Parkway in the mountains of North Carolina in my dad's '55 Chevy with one of my best buddies, Doug Harris. And we were talking about, wow, that was incredible. One small step for mankind. And now we've walked on the moon and all this sort of stuff. And unfortunately, as I was riding along, the clutch blew out in my dad's 55 Chevy. And we had to be pushed down an exit ramp into a Texaco station. Now, what were we going to do? The mechanic there couldn't fix it. He had no parts. And so we decided to just stick out our thumbs and hitchhike back to High Point, which is where we lived. And we were almost immediately picked up by a really elderly couple of driving an old 48 Plymouth mountain people. And Doug, who later became a lawyer, has been a lawyer all his adult life since 1970-something, he began a conversation with the driver saying, thank you for picking us up. What'd you think about Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and all those beautiful pictures of the earth, blue and round and revolving in space? And the driver said, that's all fake. Never happened. And Doug, not recognizing invincible ignorance when he saw it, wanted to argue, which is why he became a lawyer. But he said, why in the world don't you think that's real? No, it's just a Hollywood stunt because it says in the book of Revelations, uh, beware of anybody that starts a sentence like that because that's not the name of the book. It says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth. Can't be round if it's got four corners. Now, can it, mister? And I kept saying, shut up, Doug. We need this ride to North Wilkesboro. Just shut up. Now, what was the problem with this man who believed the Bible? He didn't know how to read it properly. It's good that he took the Bible seriously and believed it was telling him the truth about something, but he was reading metaphorical language, literally. This is a mistake. 
There's plenty of figurative language in the Bible as well as literal language in the Bible, but you need to be able to know the difference. And he didn't. And so we just quietly sat in the back seat and said, I didn't know there were still flatlanders in North Carolina in 1969, but there were, and there still are. And that's frightening. Probably more now than there were back then. Yeah, that's scary. It, yeah, it's it's had a resurgence in a way that I think some people think they might be joking. But I, I remember being at a Waffle House with my son years ago, and it seemed like it came out of nowhere. But the waitress said, have you heard that conspiracy theory about? And I just said, I'm going to stop you right there. I've never seen a conspiracy theory I didn't hate. And <laughs> she was not as nice after that. I just it's never been something that I have any particular interest in. Dr. Witherington, since we are coming along in time and I like to give the guests as much time to answer this question as they can, as they like, what books, podcasts, lectures, YouTube, what, what is out there that you would point people to in that great big world of biblical studies? I, I will recommend three of my books. There are actually four because there's a little popular thing about Jesus in the end times that I wrote. but. The more serious books that I would really recommend to any educated layperson is Jesus the Seer, which traces the nature of prophecy throughout all of biblical history, including Jesus's prophecies, including the prophecies that end the Bible and the book of Revelation. And it deals with the nature of the rise of apocalyptic literature in the exile with Daniel and Ezekiel and others. Uh, Zechariah. And the second one, beside Jesus the seer, that I would certainly recommend, it is my Revelation commentary. If Revelation is a fave rave of yours, one of your favorite go-to books that you'd like to better understand, then I would recommend my Cambridge New Testament commentary on the book of Revelation. And I think that will give you a good general orientation to that those kinds of things. You've already mentioned the problem with evangelical theology, so I'll leave that one aside for now. But maybe the most important thing I can say is you ought to get a good introduction to the New Testament that and the Old Testament that deals with the kinds of literature that are in the Bible. So my Oxford book, Reading and Understanding the Bible, would be a good place to start, or my Invitation to the New Testament would be a good place to start. They're both by Oxford. And that will give you a framework in which you can begin to parse the content of the New Testament and the Old Testament with a literary sensitivity to what's going on in those texts. Are there any of your grad students or postgraduate students that you would point us to? Are they producing anything that you think we should check out? Some of them have begun to publish. <laughs> and if you want one that's going to be an interesting read, my former doctoral student, now Professor Joy Vaughn, who teaches at Asbury University, has written a very interesting book comparing exorcisms of demons in the New Testament 
to modern practices in regard to spirit possession. And it's fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating because it takes seriously that there are such things as demons out there. And how exactly should Christians view those texts about Jesus's exorcisms or modern claims about demon possession or spirit possession? There's a movie in the theaters right now about the Pope's exorcist starring Russell Crowe. So this is obviously a topic that's out there and still current as well. And so her new book on spirit possession, I would recommend it'll be out in the fall. And uh, it, it certainly deals with some apocalyptic subjects. Where can people find you? I'm easy enough to find. First of all, I have a website, benw3.com. That's my newest website. You can find me and various of my books there. You can easily find my books on Amazon. And there is an author page on Amazon as well, if you want to look there. If you want to find me by way of like email, you can always write me at ben.witherington at asburyseminary.edu and I will get back to you. Okay. I'm going to have links to all of the books and people and your website in the show notes. Dr. Ben Witherington, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. God bless. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are interested in following, supporting, or engaging with the podcast anywhere else, check out the link tree that I've hyperlinked in the show notes. I try to put episodes out as soon as possible for $5 a month on Patreon. So if there's something that I've announced or you've seen on social media, just know $5 a month. You can listen to every episode that I have edited and I try to get them up within a week of recording the conversation. Take care.